1: I I don't know if I I talked about this with y'all, but like I found this to be fascinating. I learned it recently that in the Matrix, Will Smith was considered before Keanu Reeves. Yeah. For Neo? And like turned it down for Neo, which. How different would Neo have been as a character if Will Smith was playing? Like, I, I, I might be just like projecting that Will Smith would have played the character the way Will Smith plays characters, because they kind of did that with Keanu Reeves anyway, is that he was sort of playing Neo the way he plays everybody. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if they did that, like he would have been way different like Neo is kind of a quiet guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like they probably would have had an easier time in the second and the third because like Yes. Like there's
1: more more of there's
2: a There's more t- a <laughs> character yeah. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead of just, you know, Jesus, like a walking d- yes, plot device. <laughs> oh. Yeah.
0: Because you like Will Smith can do like dialogue. Yeah.
1: I'm <laughs> um, also but Keanu can do I, those
2: stunts. <laughs> he can do them stunts.
1: I did I, watch I mean John I will Wick say 3. Keanu Reeves is very good at stunts. Oh yeah, he fucking crushes it. Mm-hmm.
2: I watched John Wick 3 uh like 2 days ago and uh one it's so good. Two, the amount of words that Keanu says in that entire movie can be like like a half page single point <sighs> like double spaced mm-hmm. and most of the the words are yeah. And I'm like, what?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Because especially when they come out of his mouth, words like, the high table is going to come get me. It's like, it just sounds silly when you say it, dear. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) And then you have, like, on the other end of, like, the world in that movie, you have Lawrence Fishburne taking, like, a laugh break and, like, extending that out for four minutes. (laughs) And it's just, like, Mm he's doing the absolute most and the absolute least. (laughs)
0: seen chewing e-
2: yes. eating
0: it up
1: <laughs> yeah yeah Lawrence Fishburne had his mouth on every ounce of that set for That's sure so and Keanu Reeves has never tasted scenery in his life <laughs> doesn't care for it <laughs> I think it is time for us to begin once again, and as our story has in the past, this one begins in the clouds. We are cutting through the clouds just over Nordia, which are receding rapidly. The storms that have racked that town for days upon days have gone away. After the mariner was defeated, the water left with him. It is night. It is night with a bright sky. The moon is shining full, and what few stars remain in the sky are shimmering and swinging around orderly, all except, of course, for the morning star, which stays still, ever set towards home. We join the crew of the Uhuru as the heart bell is ringing beneath decks, calling attention to everyone on the crew that the captain expects something of them. They begin to assemble themselves to meet. Where do we find our heroes? Let's start with Jonnet. Where's Jonnet hanging out?
2: I think we see like a wide shot of like the front of the ship and it's like we see open clouds uh, as we, the ship is moving through the sky and then you hear the, the heart bell ring. And then you see a, a small hand like reach up from over the other side of the, the ship. Another hand grabs on to the, the railing and you see a uh, about a five foot seven ish, like a a 15 year old boy kind of like he pulls himself up. He kind of like slips like half, like a little bit, uh, on his right foot. He catches himself and he hoists himself over, uh, the railing and onto the flooring of the ship. He's five, seven. He's got a, a bandana, crimson bandana that is tied around his head. He's got kind of like a, uh, a frohawk situation going. Um, And uh, he's got a tattered sleeveless uh, shirt, um, a set of pants that might be a little bit too big for him, but he's working on it. He's growing into it. Um, He's got a satchel on his back and uh, he has a uh, Kasari Gama (laughs) in his hand that he has been uh, kind of like he's been toying around with. He's trying to get uh, a better sense of it. He has the weighted end and he's kind of like just spinning it around uh, doing a very nice and easy stroll towards uh, the gathering point on the ship. And that is Jonic Kessler.
1: The sound of the heart bell echoes again. A deep bellow that carries us to another area of the ship. What about Gable?
0: So out towards the front of the ship, there's a small speck flying in the distance. As we zoom in, that speck is actually a bird, a red-tailed hawk, specifically. Enormous hawk, actually. It's almost <laughs> as if it's uh, unusually large. It's outfitted with a saddle and various riding accoutrements. Accoutrements? Accoutrement. <laughs> And then on top of the bird, the rider in question is Gable. Gable is standing on top of the saddle, doing a little trick riding for no one, just for themselves. (laughs) Because what they're doing, they're taking the bird, Metatron, out for its paces as they do every day. There are three birds on the ship, and each of them need to be stretched out and ridden as if they were horses. So they are doing that right now. Gable is seven foot tall. Kind of uh, like a beefy seven foot. It's weird to re explain my person.
2: I know. <laughs>
1: <again>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's weird that we like periodically have to run through these paces, but gosh, I hope there's a new listener who's benefiting from uh, this stuff that we're suffering. I know. For. I, know and I know. I know. I know. <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Glad to have you.
0: Appreciate
3: it. And uh, <laughs> Kevin, if you, you know, if you really like this podcast, here's a little freebie for you. Hey, Kevin's not at the phone right now, but if you'd like to leave a voicemail, he'd appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Kevin, that's assuming that you really get deeply into this show and also somehow still take voicemails in 2020.
0: <laughs> Kevin, how about you just tell your friends to send a text? Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, they are seven foot tall. They are hard to look at, not because they're not handsome, which Agreed. they are. Hey! You didn't, you didn't get to say that! I get to say that! Um, but because it's hard to look at them directly, they have this sort of kind of they're not their quality that makes, it, makes them harder to perceive. However, it is easier to perceive them than it has been in the past. They are more solid. If someone... Had seen them perhaps like a couple months ago. They are more present now than they used to be. They have silvery, yellowish hair that is close cropped and an undercut, and they have a top knot on top. And they are currently wearing beautiful purple oilskin coat with a constellation on the back of it. And as they hear the bell, they. Stop their trick riding, sit down on the saddle, and turn the bird back towards the ship. Mm
1: We let Metatron swoop in front of the frame as we look at the Uhuru itself. It is a massive pirate ship with a wooden body held aloft by a huge envelope balloon that has a white canopy uh, that is streaked with pulsating bits of red fed by the fire of the furnaces aboard the ship that heat the feather weave which allow it to stay aloft. We can see that the Uhuru has seen many battles. There are areas of the ship that are patched. There are parts of the ship that have very recently, it looks like, taken a bit of cannon fire. But the hull itself is strong and sound and alive with the scurrying feet of the various pirates aboard the ship that are headed to the top deck to gather. Uh, We can see that top deck now as we get closer to the ship itself. There is a team of crew that are currently painting the deck, washing it with a white substance that the crew knows is starlight, a substance used to prevent fire from spreading over ships. It manages to eat and pull away heat from vulnerable things like wood, wood that is not soaked with water because it is on a ship flying in the sky. There is a huge patch of starlight that has been spread out over the deck of the ship, which is now being covered in wood and coal together. There is excited chatter from the crew as they start gathering around this place. And now we hear another ringing of the heart bell, bringing us again to a new part of the ship where we find Travis
3: Um, forgive me if you mentioned this, but what time is it?
1: It is night. Um, uh, this is like shortly after you've departed Nordia, which was during (laughs) the night. Okay. Convenient.
3: Uh, we (laughs) find Travis in his bunk, uh, which is a hammock. There are lovely sort of, um, curtains and, and things around it, which is much different than anyone else's bunk, but the man needs his privacy and he's uh lying down in his hammock and i think he's got he's got that sort of like one foot dangling off the hammock one sort of kicking himself off the wall a little bit to make him swing back and forth and he's just lazily playing with Ill- an illamat deck he is just such a handsome handsome man <laughs> and he's got uh, gray hair, explicitly gray and only gray. And uh, I
1: thought it was white. Is gray, it gray
3: white? Whatever. Same thing. They're very different. Gray.
2: Only gray. Gr- only sort of gray. Gray white. Actually, mostly white. Actually,
3: he has white hair. Well, white and gr- I in my head,
1: white and gray hair are the same. Well, so here's the thing: if Gable has silver hair. And Travis has gray hair. This is, uh, is, people in the audience might picture them as having the same hair. But sure. if Travis has white hair and Gable has silver hair, that's different. Yes. Then Travis has white hair and
3: he always has. And Gable has always <laughs> had silvery yellow hair. Yes. Um,
0: and always has. And this has not the, been a, me, a point of contention for
4: anyone.
3: <laughs> to me, you know, if I saw someone... In the real world, with like gray hair, and so I don't know that I would make a distinction whether they had gray hair or white hair. No, yeah. this doesn't matter. This is me.
1: This is me. Just <laughs> me. I don't. You know, this welcome is welcome to the, of the podcast, fantasy. Kevin. <laughs> yeah, Kevin. It's like this the whole time. Does it?
0: Pretty much this.
1: <laughs> um. Kevin's
3: phone. How may I help you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is a voicemail. If you want to leave a message for Kevin, go right ahead. Um,
1: <laughs> Good that you got a trick one in there for Kevin. I, I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm Kevin seems the like a sense. Yeah, Kevin's he, a playful. Yeah, he feels very playful. <laughs>
3: it's also um, 55. <laughs> Dull <laughs> an answering machine. Kevin can't come to the phone right now. He's reading a, a
1: Grisham novel. <laughs> um, Damn, take that, John. <laughs> All right, we, we don't have time to junk, dunk on John Grisham now. We're going to. No, this is the Dean Kuntz dunking arc. portion of the show. <laughs>
3: uh, no, Travis has white hair, always has, always will. It's. um. Oh, I'd say around shoulder length-ish. He's got a lovely brand new coat that looks almost identical to his old coat, but it's very nice. It's green. It's a long sort of, um, how would you describe that? Like, a oh, someone from Revolutionary War times was a pirate, mm. which I think is just a pirate uniform.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, like, Revolutionary War is like the 1700s, and that is kind of prime time for piracy. So, huh. And uh, he's just, that's it. That's it.
3: That's all you need to know about him right now. There's nothing (laughs) weird about what might happen in the
1: morning. As Travis is reclining in his hammock, we can see he is approached by a woman who appears to be in her mid-30s. She has dark and curling hair that falls gracefully over her back. She pulls it to the side a little bit, and we can see on her neck there is a tattoo of a black lily, proudly displayed. She reaches over and gently touches Travis's arm. I haven't been here long, but I imagine that bell means you're needed somewhere.
3: Well, it means everyone's needed.
1: Everyone so I'll go, I'll
3: go eventually.
1: Mm, I see. Well, I suppose if we're going to be fashionably late, we can at least arrive together. Matching. Margaret goes behind Travis and ties a little ribbon in his hair to uh, keep it like, I think it's maybe got a little bit bedraggled at the end of the last adventure. He probably needs a haircut and has not had time to attend to it, so it's just going to be tied back with this ribbon. And with that... We move towards the heart bell, which is at the center of the deck Travis is currently lounging on. We can see the impressive brass construction that sits at the center of the ship. It has the names of all crew members who have ever served aboard the Uhuru carved into its surface. It has seen many battles and many adventures in the air. Although it is worn and beaten, it is still polished and cared for and sounds with a deep and sonorous hum that hum extends to the top deck where we can see now that the patch of starlight has finished drying and been spread across the deck and on top of it the collection of wood and coal has been set aflame in front of those wood and coals we see captain Oromar Vale, underlit with that orange fire beneath him he is a man that I would say is around 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he has a wild mass of salt and pepper dreadlocks that are decorated with very fine bits of jewelry, prizes that have been won from conquests past. He is strong and broad and... But despite the kind of wild strength and chaotic energy that is wafting off of him, uh, we can see that his facial hair is very finely cared for, especially his mustache, which has had time taken and care taken to wax and curl the ends. There is a large grin on his face that is made perhaps a bit chilling by the fire that dances so close beneath him. We can see now there are many excited shouts and whoops from the crew around the fire because they know what is about to happen. And we join the crew of the Uhuru just as Travis and Margaret arrive on the top deck together. Fashionably late, of course. Hmm. Spit steps forward. An older pirate, the oldest pirate aboard the crew, a very short man, perhaps 5'2", 5'3". It's hard to tell if he is this way because he was born short or because he has lived a long life and shriveled up. Whatever the case may be, he steps before the crowd and there are some moans and groans because they know he is about to speak. All right, everyone, Uh. shut your mouth! Uh, shut your mouths and listen up i know some of yous is new to the crew and we ain't done something like this in a while but captain's called for a grand fire um and i i would say like uh i think dreff had been aboard the crew long enough to know what a grand fire is but I'm not sure about Gable and Travis, certainly not Jonnet. I can't remember how many months Gable and Travis had said that they were on the ship. The captain was dead for six months.
0: We were here before Dref was.
1: I thought Dref was the first aboard the crew.
0: No, yeah, you're right, because his teacher was on the boat.
1: Right? No, his teacher was his teacher wasn't on the boat, I, but I think he had said he was on the ship for two years, oh, which shoot. was yeah, then just happened to be the longest of like anybody.
3: Is this a is this a common tradition among air like the skyfaring, or is this just an Uhuru thing?
1: This is pretty much exclusively an Uhuru thing, I think. Uh, Johnny Travis actually probably has the best shot out of anybody to know what this might be. If you want to roll a knowledge adventuring for me, it
3: would be Oh, I be would love hard. to. Let me let me engage the app. <laughs> <laughs> and let me engage my character sheet. <laughs>
2: Adobe PDF <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was always Acrobat. my favorite transformer yep.
3: <laughs> okay, it's engaging, it's engaging <laughs>
0: uh, uh, Acrobat prime is the transformer's Adobe robot. Uh,
2: there it is uh, <laughs> uh,
1: uh,
3: kind of uh what what knowledge did you say this was
1: uh adventuring adventuring
3: oh travis you know maybe it's just his character leaking into my head but i feel like he should know more about stuff than his (laughs) skills would Um, well
1: johnny we're gonna be hitting a point where you're gonna get some experience soon so maybe that's a thing maybe that's a thing Um, you might want to spend something on his knowledge is shockingly
3: low uh what is the difficulty shocking to who (laughs) difficulty is hard oh that's three perps right that's three perps Um, he has two greens in every knowledge that's low that's low
1: I Uh, mean to be fair one of Travis's character traits is willfully ignoring pretty much everyone around him so well
3: because he knows better (laughs) (laughs) clearly he doesn't
2: Yeah.
3: That is one success
1: and one threat. Oh, okay. So you have heard of a grand fire before. Um, Years ago, decades ago, in fact, there used to be a town that sat along the coast called Bandari. Bandari was home to, uh, before the stars fell, some of the greatest shipwrights ever to walk sphere. Their ships were legendary, so legendary, in fact, that Travis, being 200 years old and a changeling, heard about Bandari's ships long before he ever entered arrangements with the Forest Queen. It was something in the stories he would have heard from the adventurers that would pass through his home to make deals with his father. The Bandari, unfortunately, after the stars fell, suffered great losses in their community, and although their civilization like extended past the fall of the stars, once they encountered the Red Feather Syndicate, things did not go as well. And we'll find out more about that now, because we can see Spit standing on the edge of the fire, looking resolute. He bends down and picks up a stone that has been laid over the hot coals that are currently burning, and looks at it. I've been selected to go first, so I might as well tell you what this is all about. Spit Steps forward into the fire. A ring of flames roar up around him, and some aboard the Uhuru gasp in shock. There are even a few surprised screams. I would like to know uh, how everybody reacts to Spit stepping into fire. I'm. I think. I think
2: John has a a moment of like contained fear for spit as much as spit can uh, wear on people. He is part of the crew and to see like essentially e- like everyone's collective granddad get like surrounded in flames. He's like, huh! uh, but spit seems fine. So Jonat makes himself fine with it.
0: Gable bends down to John and says, don't worry. This is the part where he sheds his skin and then comes out as a baby spit.
4: <laughs> oh,
3: it's <laughs> actually very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Travis leans into Margaret and says, uh, I've been waiting
1: for this for so long.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Spit continues to walk forward into the center of the fire. You can see that it is not as though the flames have receded from him or the heat has died away. You can feel the heat on you radiating out from this blaze. It feels pleasant and warm, especially amongst the winds on the top deck, but spit seems completely unharmed by these flames. A long time ago, uh, way back when, before the Red Feather Syndicate was called the Red Feather Syndicate, back when they was just called the Red Feather Company, there was a boy who grew up in a town called Bandari. And this boy was all sorts of clever and all sorts of brave. And he lived in a place full of people who built the best ships in the world. And they sailed them good, too. Sailed them so good that, in fact, they were able to cross the water even after the stars fell. They held no truck with the ocean and did not play with its monsters, but it did not touch their minds, and it did not touch their hearts. And they continued to sail for quite some time. Until descending from the sky came the Red Feather Company. And these people were offered a choice. The Red Feather said they had seen the grand fleet of Bandari ships, had been impressed by the legends of the Bandari that passed down from person to person throughout the ages after the stars fell. And they said that they wanted to own those Bandari ships. And so they offered the Bandari people gold. The Bandari people used to be a powerful people. And it is not that they were not powerful then, but they had lost much of their strength in the rising waters in the years that came after the stars fell. They used to be very wealthy, used to have access to fine fabrics and spices from the whole of sphere. And they commanded the respect of every one of the nations before the nations were swallowed by waves. And so the Bendari elders talked to one another and decided that they would take a new client in the Red Feather Syndicate. That they would make an accord between this new nation, or what replaced nations, and themselves. And part of this accord meant Bandari men and women went to work aboard Red Feather ships. And that clever boy was one of those people. But the Red Feathers did not uphold their agreement. The Red Feathers converted Bandari sailing ships into sky ships. Many of these ships, so finely built, that today, sixty years after the Red Feather added them to their fleet, they are still standing strong and proud. You are standing on the deck of one of those ships right now. And as I said, the Red Feathers did not keep their accord. They converted those ships, they promised gold and treasures in the world. But as soon as the Bandari fleets and their bay were reduced to nothing, the Red Feathers simply packed up and flew away, knowing there could be no retribution. And without their ships, the people of Bandari were set to wander to walk away from their home, to walk away from their ancestral land which could no longer support them, to walk away from their identity, the thing that made them who they are. And this boy had to watch that, had to harbor that tragedy in his heart as he sailed the skies. And one day he decided he would deal with that no longer. That he would not witness the Red Feathers commit another to suffer as he had and as his people had. And you are standing on the deck of this ship with that boy today. That is Captain Oromar Vale, the greatest enemy the Red Feather Syndicate has ever had or ever will have. He has stood against red feather cannon, against the swords of privateers, and even against the mariner himself, and he has emerged unscathed. And we do this stand in this fire, speak these stories to one another, because the grand fire was a tradition of the Bendari, and they are a people that no longer exist in the way they did. But we hold their stories and their traditions in our hearts, and in that, they still live. So as long as these flames blaze, the Grand Fire will continue, and Bandari will continue. And that is something that Oromar has kept for the many years that he has been captain of this ship. And it has been a long time since the Uhuru has seen a grand fire. It has been a long time since Oromar has felt moved to ask for one. But here we are now, standing on the eve of the second great victory that we have had in a stretch of many, many months. And so now I ask members of our crew to step forward, approach the fire, and reach in. In the fire, there are stones. Now, when you reach into the fire, it will not burn you, as it did not burn the Bandari all those years ago when they told stories for the Grand Fire. The Grand Fire is here to hear our stories and deliver them to the breeze in smoke. It is not here to harm or consume, and it will not so long as we respect its tradition. So reach in and grab yourself a stone. If your stone is marked, you will step forward tonight and you will tell a story. If your stone is unmarked, then your job is merely to listen. And That is the story of the grand fire in the ways that it exists today. And that is what we will be doing this evening because we do it at the pleasure of our captain who has seen us safe through so many storms. And that's it. Get in. Get your stones. <laughs> Stop yelling. <laughs> and Spit right. kind of waddles out of the fire.
2: <laughs> I guess Jonet I feel like Jonet probably looks up to Gable, is like walking with them, and then maybe like, got his arm around one of like the orphans who was like, hey, come on, come on. If I'm doing it, you gotta do it. Come on. Don't push me. <laughs> goes, and, goes and grabs a stone.
1: Jonnet, your stone is marked with an image of a fireplace. A hearth. And you can feel in your mind a request immediately um it doesn't have a voice but looking at the symbol carved into the stone that is glowing red from the heat you can tell that it is making that request of you now the stone wants to hear a story about your home
2: so john it feels this um he kind of like moves over to spit and uh, shows him the stone. He's like, "I think, um, do I go?"
1: Well, young sir, I'd I'd say if uh, if the stone's asking you to go, you should go. If it's marked, you definitely have to go. And if it's asking, you gotta go now. Uh,
2: okay. He he walks up to like where the, the the line of fire starts. He like he starts to walk over. Then he takes a couple steps back, does a light jog, and like jumps over into the the middle of the the circle. And
1: um, an important thing for you to know, Tyler, is that the flames react to Jonnet as he steps in. You jump in with a little bit of flare, and the flames roar up to underscore that flare that you use to get in. Uh, oh they are reacting to your movements and your voice and underscoring everything that you're doing.
2: Okay. He hits the ground, sees the flare up, um, and then he goes to start his story and realizes maybe like, maybe only like a third of the people are paying attention like Gable is the orphan is Travis is not Margaret is (laughs) and so he's like hey hey I'm gonna go now he's like and then at one point he says I said and then like the fires like flare up again and then they come (gasps) down and John says it's story time
1: Hey heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and welcome to the mid-roll! Let's get things started off with a radvertisement. This one comes to us from the Wild Sea. In the Wild Sea, you play as characters sailing the rustling waves of a vast and weird treetop ocean. Create characters from an array of bloodlines, origins, and posts that both mechanically and narratively inform who they are. Play anything from a towering cactus corsair to a hookah-smoking hive mind of spiders. The engine uses a D6 cinematic narrative dice pool that draws inspiration from Belly of the Beast, Blades in the Dark, Thirteenth Age, and Dialect. And this is a really charming note. They were apparently inspired by the Belly of the Beast actual play that we did on One Shot. You can check out the Wild Sea quick start rules for free right now at thewildsea.co.uk. And if you like what you see, don't forget to head over to the Kickstarter page to be notified when it launches. A huge thank you to the folks at Wild Sea for supporting the show this week, and a hearty congratulations on making this game. I'm so excited to check out something that was inspired by our shows. Heroes, we have started a new season of Campaign Skyjacks and this episode is a jumping on point. So if you've got friends who you've been harassing to get into Skyjacks and they don't want to take the time to start from episode one, let them know that this is a good time to join up with the show. We're reintroducing our characters, establishing important things about the universe and revealing new secrets that you'll enjoy as well. So be sure to tell your friends that now is the time to take flight. Before we get back to the episode, I want to mention that currently the Audioverse Awards are open for voting. And there are currently so many wonderful one shot shows that are up for recognition, including Campaign Skyjacks, Skyjacks Courier's Call, The Broadswords, and A Horror Borealis. I would love to see some of these shows get recognition for the hard work everyone involved does on them. So, if you've got some extra time, please head over to audioverseawards.net and cast your ballots in favor of your favorite one-shot shows. I'll also ask that you throw some votes for friends of one-shot shows, including Party of One by Jeff Stormer. Finally, I want to say a quick thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We couldn't make this show without you, and we certainly couldn't be at the start of a new season without you. So if you like what you're hearing here, please head over to patreon.com slash one-shot podcast and sign up to be a supporter. It also gets you access to great bonus content, like the bonus series for Skyjack's Courier's Call that is currently premiering on Patreon. And in November, I'll be posting the session zero that we did at the start of our Nordia arc. If you're curious about how we made some of the NPCs and setting elements for Nordia to compare them to the actual narrative that unfolded, you'll definitely want to hear that. All you need to do is support us for $5 a month or more over at patreon.com slash one-shot podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to
2: save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at
1: slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And with all that out of the way, let's get back in the sky.
2: So, um, back in my hometown of Acheron, I lived on a farm with my dad and my sister, and we had our own, uh, plot of land that we would tend, but there was also, uh, another farm next to our land, and that was owned, uh, by, by the Durfs, by, <laughs> and, uh, uh, by uh, Hank Durf. And uh, he was fine. He was cool. He, he, he let us borrow tools whenever we didn't have uh, what we needed. But his sons, oh, they sucked. Danny and Dennis Durf. Um, <laughs> they, they, uh, they would always... Uh, sometimes we would have chickens that would go missing. And if you ever had a chicken go missing, you had to check with the Durf twins. Because they always would have them, but they would never tell you where. And then you'd have to find your own chickens scattered out throughout your own lo- own land. So one day, I had enough. So I walked over there, and I knocked on the front door. And Hank Durf, he opened the, the door, and he said, like, can I speak to your son? And they which one? They, the, whichever's the stupidest looking. And then he looked <laughs> at me, and I said, just Denny. Um, so then Denny Durf came to the door. I was like, hey, Denny, I know you're stealing chickens in our house, in our from, our from our land. What do I gotta do to make you stop? Cause I know it's you. And stupid Denny Durf. He's like, well, you wanna- if you wanna stop the chickens from disappearing, you gotta prove yourself worthy. Well, how do I prove myself worthy, Denny? You gotta race me. A race? I said, A race where? And then he said, uh, a race across our entire fields, both of them combined, from one end to the other." And when Jonah says "one end," he like stretches his arm out, and then the f- the flames like kind of like shoot out in one a- end to the other end, and it flares out to the other. And then, and if if you win, then maybe just maybe your chickens will uh, will stay put. But if I win, well. It's just a little bit more business as usual. I said, Fine, you're on. So the next day, we line up at the beginning of his farm. And and Danny, the other one, Danny, and Danny? Danny.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're he stood around.
2: it. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yep. He uh he stood there at the beginning, Zana would be at the end, and he said, Go. And we started running. Danny, Danny was fast, real fast, too fast. So he's running, and I don't know how to—I don't know how to stop him. So then I think to myself, he knows this land better than I do. I just got to get to where I need to be faster than him. So I take a shortcut. I start cutting across instead of around, and he sees me as I'm caning, and I'm, I end up passing him, and he starts following me. Which is exactly where I want him, because there's a land that separates our two, and it's covered by a bunch of trees. And I knew these, I knew this, so when we go into the trees, I'm bobbing and weaving, but I know that he's following me. So I go down a specific path, and we're going, and we're going, and we're going, and then all of a sudden you hear a ship whoo! And then uh the, the the fires like shoot up a little bit. <laughs> and I knew I had a hook line and sinker. I stopped running. Cause I turn around, I walk back over, and I see the sight. Denny Durf hanging upside down. Caught in a trap line that I laid for him the night before.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: uh and the crew of the Uhuru is cheering and whooping. <laughs> yeah, fuck that kid. <laughs> he sucks. I yeah! It.
2: Because it's sometimes you, got, it's, you, you have to be brave. you have to be strong, but you also got to be cunning. and you got to outsmart your, your opponent as much as you gotta outmuscle him. And so I looked at him and I said, "Well, I guess I'll go cross the, the finish line and I turn around. And I started walking away. But what I didn't see was the other trap I laid. Zip, woof. <laughs> <laughs> so then, we're just both hanging, just dang- dangling for a good hour and a half. And you know what? We start talking in that hour and a half. And it turns out, Denny Durf is kind of a nice dude. It's just, it's just we kind of got off on the wrong foot. We both like dog racing. We both got fast dogs. We both like maps. We started talking about the different maps that we have. And by the end of it, when Zana finally came back and found us, called my dad to cut us down, we didn't even finish the race. I guess it's still going. But I don't know. I guess it's important to be cunning, but it's also important to uh, take stock in where you are. And maybe just listen every now and again. But also, fuck that kid. Yeah! <laughs> I hate daddy!
1: But, yeah, there, there's a thunderous applause from the crowd around you. Uh, there are people who, even those who are unfamiliar with the Grand Fire tradition, have now settled in. They're passing around mugs of ale and the provisions that were given to you by the town of Nordia after you liberated them from the Mariner's attack. The warmth of the fire and the glow of the fire feels like it touches everywhere. Even in the places of the ship where people are still at work, the stories of the fire and the laughter of the fire is carried to them, and they feel that warmth in their hearts, and it makes that work go easier and quicker. And then we come to the next speaker. We can see Nodos has a stone that has grown alight. He holds it up from the crowd and shows it around to everyone around him as he strides forth to the fire. He steps inside. We can see him. He is a thin and gaunt man who is wiry and tall. Not quite as tall as Gable or maybe even the captain, but even though he lacks the actual height, he projects a length to him. Uh, He's got a bit of a Jack skeleton feel to his proportions, (laughs) but the most striking thing about nodos is that he looks as though he has never slept a day in his life. There are thick, dark circles under his eyes and he has just that pallorous look of someone who is always staring a thousand miles ahead. I Drew the Star Watcher, and I gave a think to it while Jonnet was telling his tale. Yeah, what... think on it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think like it is a very supportive <laughs> mood, and the crowd roars up and applauds. And I thought about crew members, crew members who perhaps. I misjudged, or perhaps I didn't like when I met, crew members who have proved themselves to be worthy, and who I choose to remember right now. We lost two men these past few days in Nordia, Polly and Ryan. Holly and Ryan were part of our group and fought bravely against the forces of the Mariner alongside us. They took risks, but they took them for our crew. And for that reason, I will be telling a tale that was one of their favorites. The Tale of the Morning Star. After the stars fell, more than just the seasons were in chaos. The sky itself was a churning turmoil. Every night, stars would dash back and forth across the sky, moving in ways that were unclear and unpredictable, sometimes moving before your very eyes. The remnants of the now-forgotten nations were lost in a broken world and still sending their sailors off to die in a wild sea. They did not know that it was only safe to sail in sight of the coast back then. And when they were sailing in darkness, they sailed using the ancient methods, which called for following the stars." But the stars being in chaos meant that these souls were doomed to die out in an ocean, wandering adrift until their supplies failed them, or they found themselves wrecked upon the Mariner's Island. Eventually, most people abandoned the sea, for it had forsaken them. However... There are not places all over Sphere where folk have that luxury. Fisherfolk, islanders, the oarsfolk of Abhain. Those folk do not have lives that they can live away from the water. They depend on it, even as it predates upon them. And those folk are the folk who found the Morning Star. In the evening, it is the first star to rise. And at dawn, it is the last star to burn out. And it is the one star in the sky that moves in a certain path. One path that cannot be deterred or swayed. Moving consistently night after night. And after the stars fell... After the period of chaos, it was the morning star that pulled the frantic heavens into its wake. Slowly those darting lights fell in line. They still move and swim across the sky, but always following the axis of the morning star. And this is the foundation of which star watching is built upon. Those who keep close eye on the skies and follow the path of the Morning Star can see the frayed edges of the broken world and fit those pieces together. It allows them to see the shifting seasons before they change, predict the terrible maelstrom before it strikes, and find the friendly ports which have been lost to time and memory. Wherever you may be on Sphere, it is the morning star that will guide you home. And that's why skyjacks mark themselves with its image. To carry the morning star with you is to carry your home with you. As long as it sits upon you, you can rest assured that you will be returned to your home at the end of your life. Ryan showed me that he had marked himself with the Morning Star. And it is Ryan's ashes that I carry with me. He can rest assured that I will see them safely laid to rest at his home. And that is the Morning Star. If you did not know, now you do. So it is that stories go the story is met with more of a somber note. Not one that fully kills the mood, but a warm sorrow. A sorrow that makes you think fondly of people that you loved that are no longer with you. People maudlinly sip their ales as Nodo's steps out of the fire. And Gable, you feel a warmth in your palm as Your stone has lit up. It is marked with a mass of wings and eyes that sparkle in the fire. And you feel the urge echo in your mind. Confess. Confess. Tell them the darkest secret that you hold in your heart.
0: Gable drops the rock.
1: It clatters on the deck of the ship. Hey, Cable, you dropped this rock.
0: <laughs> Thank you, <John> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <That's> what? <laughs> and then they, they pick it back up again. Can I see Ormar?
1: Yes, you can. Ormar is across the fire um, and appears to be looking directly at you. His eyes are sparkling in the firelight. Which helps you see him as he winks. Jeez.
4: Whew.
0: Okay. Gable walks to the fire. Does it react to me the same way it did Johnnet?
1: Yes. It reacts to you like kind of matching your style and mood. You know, the flames like sink a little bit and it feels like they simmer and pulse. Uh, We can see above Gable as Gable is like stepping onto the fire uh, that it ripples out uh, the way water would if uh, you were to drop something in it.
0: On the day we lost Dref, I made a promise to a few of you that one day I would tell you everything. I would answer any questions you deemed proper. I would, in good faith, tell you everything you needed to know. Everything that I thought was important for you to know. However, I realized something. I'm more of a visual storyteller. (laughs) Gable puts the rock down on the ground, starts unbuttoning their coat. Where's Travis?
3: No, no! Gable throws Stop. the coat at his face.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh-huh. Oh, It's so heavy. It's so much fabric. It's too huge.
0: Gable starts undoing their shirt. And pulls it off. And then Gable starts undoing the bandages on their torso. And now I want to do a spell. Oh hell yeah! Um, let me find my sheet. Hold on. Mm. It's back here. So I have an idea. Adobe Acrobat
4: activate. <laughs> 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 boop boop boop. E sign.
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> so I want to be able to control the fire. What difficulty do you think that would be easy? Easy. easy. I, you know,
1: okay. I don't think you even need to cast a spell. Like part of the thing is that you're controlling the fire right now. I guess it depends on what you want to do with that fire.
0: There are like shades of what I want to happen. And depending on how the role goes, like what will happen will change depending on how good it goes. Then I'll, then I'll make it average to purple. Okay. And I'm casting divine magic. That's three successes and an advantage. So Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm going to tell you what I wanted to happen. I want to be able to show the crew one of my visions. And if that role had gone badly, it would have been a vision that I would not have been able to explain but if it had gone well.
1: That's cool.
0: Or like the my original deal was like the vision would be something that made me look good. But I think instead the vision that I'm able to show them is the one that is the most important, that is the most deep and dark secret. And that is the very last one I just had.
1: Uh, please describe the vision that people see.
0: The way that it starts. Okay. So this is the first time everyone's seen Gable in such regalia, lack thereof. So what they do, they kind of hook their paw, their hand into the fire and hold it in their hand as if like, you were doing a fancy cocktail hour and someone poured brandy and they're showing off, showing that they can hold a flame in their hand. Mm. And then when they cast the spell, it just bursts and covers their whole arm. And then through that, they are able to all of a sudden wing around and make sort of a column of flame that starts small as kind of like a small whirlpool in their hand and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it covers the circumference of the inside of the circle. And from there, in the flames, it all of a sudden swoops down. And all there's left is a bunch of ash falling through the air like it's snowing and in Mm -hmm. the ash as if it's being projected in like weird 3D almost unrendered the vision of Gable on the island with the other figures that they saw
1: yeah so there is this vision of Gable An angel, an archangel, flaming sword in hand, wings unfurled and proudly spread with hundreds of eyes blazing in front of something that really can only be represented as a fiery mass of eyes wearing a crown. There is another angel there behind Gable, much smaller, hard to make out, as though the memory is still in hazy relief. Liz, I I do want you to describe the blow. Can I ask a quick question?
3: Mm -hmm. Yes. Is this what Gable looked like
1: the first time they met Travis? So I believe like I have listened to that recently and I believe Gable was not really visible to the naked eye beyond like kind of being a distortion in the air and controlling fire. I will say that Travis, there might be something very primal in you that reacts to this, but it might not be clear what that is. Unless Liz, you had another desire for that.
0: I, I think even if visually it doesn't look the same, Travis can see a connection. Cool. Or like it rings a bell for him. Uh, So what this looks like, this is from the perspective of one of the children. They've been sitting on the ground almost too close to the fire because that's what kids do. They try to test their luck. And from their perspective these great figures of smoke and ash are forming themselves and they're sitting right behind the supine figure. The figure that is Gable is taking their flaming blade and slowly forcing it through the body, the throat of the figure on the ground. And instead of stopping, it goes through the other side and... Gets right up to the chest of the child. Mm. And then, with a great blow, the gable figure forces it through.
1: Then it puffs out.
0: The vision disappears.
1: The crowd is stunned, completely unable to make heads or tails of what they have seen. There is a deep silence where even the howling wind as the Uhuru travels through the air seems to be held back. You can feel your heartbeat in this silence. And it's only broken by whispers. Whispers of people saying like, What does that mean? Well, it's going to be a lie. Uh, This doesn't make sense. The the Grand Fire doesn't let people tell lies. And then Orimar Vale steps forward. Into the Grand Fire, next to Gable. Orimar stands in front of you, and you stand so much taller than him, as you stand so much taller than pretty much everyone else that you've ever met in your whole life. But in this moment, it feels as though he towers over you. The way the flames reflect against him, and especially in his eyes, it casts a shadow that makes him seem so much larger than life. He draws his sword and stabs it into the ground at your feet. And then bows to you. A slight bow, but a bow nonetheless. He picks up the sword and sweeps it through the air in front of him, causing the fire to leap to life beneath the blade. And with that, the older members of the crew know that Oromar has shown you a sign of respect, that regardless of what this vision seems to imply, Oromar bears no grudge against you. With that, he exits the grand fire and motions for you to step aside. The crew does not riot The crew does not scream, but you can feel all of their eyes on you. They have not moved. Many of them are staring at those scars you have on your back, thinking through what they must mean after what you've shown them. Some of them make the dark calculations that, Somehow this means you must be at fault for all the terrible things that befell Sphere after the stars fell. Some of them, hopefully, think about the gesture of respect that the captain gave you. Hopefully, that will allow you to sleep here another night, to continue to live your life here not force you to abandon another home. Skyjax is a one-shot Network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at @campaignpod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing. You can find more great gaming shows over at OneShotPodcast.com. Like The Broadswords. The Broadswords is an all-women D&D podcast focused on drama, role-play, and subverting stereotypes. Join the Broads as they unravel the mysteries of the Snowy Rashomon, a land ruled by witches, steeped in superstition. Berserkers reign, and spirits roam the frozen wastes. Yelary's, Keela, and Maypre all have their own reasons for journeying north, but soon they discover they have something in common. They are pawns in a divine plot. You can find the Broadswords on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Jonnet Kessler was played by Tyler Davis, who can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Tyler A. Dave. Gable was played by Liz Anderson, who can be found on Twitter at Liz Anderson, underscore, 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 or on her podcast, Paired. Travis Matigo was played by Johnny O'Meara, who can be found on Twitter at Johnny and Briefs, or on his podcast, Dilettante Ball. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at One Shot RPG or on my other podcast, OneShot. The original music featured in this production was composed and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find Arnie on Twitter at A-R-N-E-P-A-R-R-O-T-T. And you can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony, spelled C a s e y. P-O-N-E-Y, or on his own podcast, Neoscum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter, at Fiona Pup. The world of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists and the card game Illimat, property of Together Studios. The game used in this production is a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system that was created by a talented group of game designers, who were fired by a private equity firm owning Fantasy Flight Games. There are no kings. Take flight, heroes.
0: Health to the strangers you've ever been kind, and once for our friends
3: near the rise, twice to the dearest we're leaving behind Who you know we can never deny
2: The call of the sky.